Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. This is, of course, a big week in all of Christendom. This is called the Week of Passion, as it's normally called around the world. This is the most important week in the life of the most important person, the most central person and personality in all of history, and it was really at this point that he changes history to his story, Jesus himself. It's a very deliberate, specific, chosen moment. He knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going, and because of that, there is a lot for us to dive into to understand who Jesus really is and how we respond to him. Question to begin. What did Jesus do in the two days before this Passion Week starts? Anybody know? If you had a two-day break before that final week preceding your death, you knew you were relentlessly going towards Jerusalem because you were going to give your life there. If you had a two-day break before this moment, before this week, who would you spend that weekend with? What would you spend it doing What would your activities and your heart desire be? This was Jesus' situation. From Palm Sunday on, there were a lot of things he had to do, but he arrived in the area a couple of days early. He had a Friday and a Saturday that was unscheduled. Do you know what he did? It might be what you would do. He went to the home of three of his closest friends, less than three kilometers or so outside the city of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They weren't members of his discipleship group, but they had become close personal friends, and he had often stayed with them in his travels. In fact, it was just a few weeks earlier than this that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. The last two days before the final week of all the things he could have done and places he could have done and people to be with, Jesus chooses this inner circle of friends to be with. This, of course, is perfectly consistent with the teaching of Jesus because all throughout his teaching ministry, all throughout it, he lifted up the value of community, of oneness. He said, I know how you're created. You're created to be in an inner circle of friends that you trust and that you love. A group of people that you can know and be known by. Love and be loved by. Serve and be served by. Celebrate and be celebrated by. Jesus taught that that's the yearning of everyone's heart and encouraged everybody to move forward into that kind of community. Here's the final free time of his life. And he lived out his teaching, spending time in community. So how are you doing on this one? Just as a little sidebar before we get really into this. How are you doing on this one? Do you have an inner circle of trusted friends that know you and are deeply known by you? You should be moving towards that. It's part of what makes you to feel truly alive. It's part of what God created you for. Then after those two days comes Sunday. Today, the beginning of Passion Week and, of course, as mentioned, Palm Sunday. But we don't use palms to celebrate in our culture. We hold a parade. Now, here's the interesting part of the whole deal. Jesus is actually being paraded into the city of Jerusalem. There's a buzz 
in this city right now. Jesus' popularity is through the roof. He's just raised someone from the dead. He's been healing people. He's, his teaching has been awesome. It's astonishing everybody. And now he's arriving in the capital city of Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year, Passover. Passover was a celebration that had been going on for thousands of years since the days of Israel's captivity in Egypt when the angel of the Lord came and said to put the blood of an innocent lamb over your doorframe and you and your family will not be harmed. And that's exactly how it happened. And understandably then, that moment has con was continued to be celebrated every year thereafter. They would take the blood of an innocent lamb and pour that on the altar and that symbolized forgiveness for God's people for for their sins for their family's sins passover was a very big deal and people from all over the roman empire traveled to jerusalem to celebrate it it's estimated that the population of jerusalem swelled five oh, fivefold from 50,000 to two to more than 250,000 in this week of, of course as we're about to see it's no coincidence that the very time that they're celebrating the fact that the blood of the Lamb has saved their forefathers, Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday, but that was not what it was called back in the day. It was actually called Lamb Selection Day. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. It was the day you would go and choose the Lamb that your family would offer as a sacrifice. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. There's the Lamb. He's come to take away the sins of the world. Now on this day, we see Jesus declaring himself as the Lamb of God and making himself available to anyone to choose. Will you choose me this Lamb Selection Day? He's indicating as he, as he comes into the city. For this Passover, the one sacrifice who can cover every sin. Will you choose me? Here I am, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The day that Jesus chose to make his entry into Jerusalem is obviously very important. The way he chose to make his entrance is also very important. If you have a Bible, we're going to be going back and forth between John 12 and Luke 19, two accounts of this moment. We begin. Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Jerusalem is now just over the hill, and Jesus tells them, go a little bit further into the next town, and in there you will see a donkey, a donkey tied up. Untie it and bring it to me. It is very important for all I'm about to do. I need that donkey. So the disciples go and do that, and there in lies the first incident that I've ever come across of a donkey jacking. Yeah, not a car jacking, a donkey jacking. The donkey has never been ridden. Jesus climbs on and this donkey has no idea the weight that it is carrying. Have you ever thought about this? It's not a beast of burden yet. He's still just a colt. But now it is carrying the greatest burden the world has ever known. The sins of the world. My sins, your sins on the back of that donkey. Your sin was carried on the shoulders of Jesus who was on the donkey. This is a very important moment here. Jesus knows exactly where this donkey is going to take him. Into the city of Jerusalem. All the way to the cross and ultimately to his death. The weight of the world now is resting on the back of this donkey. And the donkey actually is about to speak. For a few moments, I was tempted to call this talk, The Donkey Speaks. But then I realized I ran the risk of being too closely associated or identified 
with the fact that I was speaking. <laughs> if the shoe fits. The Gospels all record this incredible reception and wild parade that greeted Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. The crowd was wildly welcoming Jesus as they would a great and conquering hero, a king. They laid their coats in the road as sort of a crude red carpet. They spread out leafy palm branches and waved them as he passed. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now, is almost the emphasis. But really, what was really going on in that moment? What was really going on on Palm Sunday? And what is the significance of it to us now, more than 11,000 kilometers and 2,000 years distant from that event? I know it sounds odd, but I think that the answers to those questions can be found in the donkey that Jesus was riding as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, lighting a fuse on the most explosive week in human history. At least, of course, in a figurative way, the donkey can tell us three valuable things about Jesus. First, it tells us who he is. Second, it tells us what he's like. And third, it tells us what he deserves. So let's start with the issue of who Jesus is. How can a four-legged, long-eared, scruffy animal like a donkey tell us anything important about who Jesus was? Well, the mere fact that Jesus chose the ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was confirmation that he was the Messiah. He was sending a signal to everybody who was there. He was the Savior who had been anticipated by the Jews for generations. About 500 years before this Sunday, Palm Sunday, a prophet named Zechariah foretold that the Messiah, the one endowed with the power of salvation, would ride into Jerusalem atop a young donkey. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus ended up doing. Jesus used the donkey to make a very blatant and unambiguous statement to the world that he indeed was the long-awaited Messiah. It was a message. God made sure that we would know exactly who the real Messiah is. <clears throat> Excuse me. In effect, he gave, a, he, gave, he gave us a set of fingerprints and said, when you find the one individual in all of history who matches this set of fingerprints, then you will know beyond a doubt that you have found the Messiah who will be your Savior. These fingerprints came in the form of prophecies or divinely inspired predictions that were written and recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. They were written hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus was born. There are about five dozen major prophecies and 456 identifying characteristics that specifically and precisely define who the Messiah would be. So at about two minutes each, we should be here till sometime later this evening. No. In all of history, only one individual ever has fulfilled those prophecies. It wasn't Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or any other religious leader who ever walked the earth and claimed to be the one who saves. You know, there's something really important about this. Every one of those people I mentioned and so many more, if you happen to walk into a cemetery where they are, you would see this kind of, or at least picture, this sign on their grave. Occupied. Occupied. Here lies... You won't find that with Jesus. It's unoccupied, right? Who are you putting your faith in today? There's a story that I hope will clarify the implications of what we're talking to, about today. It's based on a television program that, of all people, Alfred Hitchcock put on. And it's not a true story, therefore, but there's a lesson in it, if you'll pay attention. The woman in the story has just murdered her husband. That's not the lesson. She's been sent to prison for the rest of her life. 
no possibility of parole. She's going to rot in that prison until she dies. But there was no way she was going to spend the rest of her life behind bars. She's going to get out, and she's going to be free again. She had just had to figure out how. As the prisoner bus is arriving at the prison, she looks out, and there outside the prison walls is an elderly gentleman, all dressed in prison garb, carrying a casket. He's putting it into the ground. It turns out an inmate has died, and an elderly worker at the prison, a prisoner himself, is trusted to do the burials outside the prison walls when an inmate dies. She starts to think. She gets into the prison and makes friends with this elderly man who did the burials. She finds out he has problems with cataracts in his eyes and is having trouble seeing things clearly. She says, I've got money, and when you get out, I could pay for you to have an operation to restore your sight, and you will see so much better. I'll do that for you if you will just allow me and help me to escape. He says, okay, what have I got to lose? The next time the prison bell tolls, signifying that an inmate has died, come down, sneak down to the little room where I build the caskets and get into the casket with the dead body. I'll bury you, and then I'll come back out that night using the excuse that I'm just checking on the grave, and I'll dig you up and set you free. A few weeks later, in the middle of the night, the bell tolls. Aha! She gets out of her cell, feels her way down the hallways to where the work room is, finds the casket, climbs in with the body, puts the top of the casket over her, and she waits. A few hours later, she can feel the casket being sealed and wheeled outside. She feels the casket being lowered into the ground. She hears the dirt clods hitting the lid above her. I don't know if you're claustrophobic, but, you know, try and get through this part. You're in this little box with a dead body, and you're getting buried under six feet of dirt. She waits. She waits. It gets to be a long, long time in the pitch dark. Where is he? Why isn't he here to dig me up yet? What's going on? Why, oh why, isn't he coming? She starts to panic. It's more than she can stand. So finally she lights a match to see and discovers the body next to hers is that of the elderly worker. Her only hopes been buried with her. There's a powerful lesson in this, isn't there? The woman had placed her faith, her trust in another human being who she sincerely thought, believed, could rescue her from the grave, but he died. And he had taken her to his grave with him. So the question is, who are you putting your faith in today to rescue you from the life you're living? From the grave, where's your hope invested? Another human being? A belief system somewhere? The prophet, Micah, prophet Micah foretold where this Messiah, this one who would truly save us, would be born 700 years before the fact. His intricate ancestry, how he was born, that he was going to be able to work great miracles of healing that were done in front of eyewitnesses all over the place, that he was going to be betrayed for a specific amount of money, how he was going to be put to death, and all, the predicted long, all that long predicted before Jesus ever set foot on this earth. The prophecies about crucifixion were written before crucifixion was even invented. There were two people crucified, one on either side with Jesus. As was the normal course, the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the people on either side of Jesus to hasten his death. They didn't break the bones of Jesus. That also was a fulfillment of prophecy. They pierced him with the spear. The soldiers cast lot for his clothing as was foretold. It just goes on and on and on. 
These events were predicted at least half a millennium before Jesus was even born. One scholar, for you mathematicians in the crowd, had his 12 classes of graduate students in mathematics compute the actual odds of even just 80% of these prophecies coming true in any one individual living down through history. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine you are at the beach, and it's not just your bathing suit that's filled with sand, but the entire universe is filled with grains of sand, history's biggest kitty litter box. Imagine that the entire universe now, billions of light years across, is filled to the brim with sand. Let's go further. Let's take a trillion, trillion universes. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll lose my voice here. <coughs> a trillion, trillion universes the size of our universe and fill them all with sand. Picture it. Scientists have computed how many grains of sand that would be. Someone's got way too much time on their hands. With all that sand, okay? Have you got the picture? Not just your bathing suit, trillions and trillions and trillions of, univer of universes all filled to the brim with sand. And in all that sand, there is only one grain of sand that's colored green. Now imagine, you could travel somehow through all that sand, stop one time only, open the little porthole, reach out blindfolded, and pick up one grain of sand from all these trillion, trillion universes. That grain of sand would have to be the one colored green for all these prophecies to come true in anything other than Jesus. The odds that this could happen, the odds that just 48 out of the 60 prophecies could come true in any man who has ever lived throughout history and Jesus did it friends these prophecies only come true in one individual Jesus Christ by representing by fulfilling the prophecy the donkey on Palm Sunday can help us establish who Jesus was but could it also be that Jesus was also saying more about who he wasn't by riding in on the donkey could it be he was saying more about his kingdom and his kingship and his way of ruling by saying who he was not? They expected a lion of war to achieve victory over the hated Romans occupying their land. And he comes instead as the Lamb of God. They expected a mighty war horse and he's on a donkey. Could it be that Jesus is quite dramatically saying that I'm not the type of king you think I am? My kingdom is different than any kingdom on this earth. Could it be that he's saying more about who he is by declaring quite clearly who he's not? Hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the city look up and begin to run towards him. Could this be our king who's come to save us? Then they run up and see that Jesus isn't on this mighty horse. He's on a donkey. It had to be a little disarming, don't you think? Don't you think it had to make them think? Huh? We're expecting this Braveheart moment, you know, riding the steed across in front of us. Freedom! Freedom! Right? And what's a donkey doing here? Second, the donkey can tell us what Jesus is like. <clears throat> 
The crowds on that Palm Sunday who were welcoming Jesus triumphantly into Jerusalem had no idea of the kind of Savior he was. After, it all, after all, it had happened before. In the Old Testament, it's full of instance after instance after example when God intervened to save his people from their oppressors. But of course, that salvation was only temporary. God's people would respond by pledging new and undying devotion to God only to begin almost immediately to squander and waste the benefits of their relationship to him and repeat the cycle over and over and over again. This time, however, was to be much different. While the circumstances were much the same, the Hebrews had lost touch with God and were living selfish, immoral lives and had been subjugated yet again. This time by the Romans. Jesus has a whole different agenda this time. Jesus wasn't riding into Jerusalem to stop, you know, on a white stallion and swinging a sword like some military conqueror. Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, common beast of burden. It's an animal that is universally recognized as being symbolic of humility, of peace, of servanthood, of gentleness. The crowds wanting a conquering king who they could put on a throne, what did they think? Why didn't this pierce them in some way? Why didn't they get that what Jesus wanted was to willingly be enthroned in the hearts of those who were coming to celebrate? That's a whole different thing than being put physically on this kingly throne. He wanted to have the throne of their hearts. Jesus wasn't coming to bring a short-term political solution to the Roman problem of the first century. He was coming to bring a long-term spiritual solution to a problem that has been shared by all of mankind all through history, which is that our sin, our wrongdoing, has separated us from God. Shortly before Jesus hopped the donkey to ride into Jerusalem, he said, I'm coming as a servant to give my life as a payment for people. Here you have Jesus of infinite power, absolute perfection, who deserves to be the focus of the worship of all creation. Here you have Jesus, who is rightly entitled to all the perks of being the creator and governor of the entire universe. Here you have Jesus, who had every right in the world to angrily sweep into Jerusalem on a stallion, swing a sword, and destroy anybody who did not bow down to him. Yet he chose instead to be a God of grace, a God of second chance. He chose to humbly offer himself as payment for the wrongdoing that separates us from God. He was willing to pave the way himself with his own life so that people can have a new beginning that they don't even deserve. Do you see? He deserves so much and he instead gave what we didn't deserve. The people in the crowd on that Palm Sunday weren't the only ones with an inaccurate perception of who God is. Many of us grew up with inaccurate images as well. Many of us see Jesus as a person who wants to storm into our lives on top of a war horse and strike us dead with his sword. That's because we think of all the wrongs and mess-ups that we've had in our lives. We can think of the times when we looked at the Ten Commandments as this kind of restrictive set of do's and don'ts instead of a love letter from God his his, to show his people how to live rightly, how to live deep, satisfying, and secure lives. Avoid these things. Don't do these things, and you will have a great life. We can think of all the times when we put other things more important in our place in our lives than God. When we've misused his name. When we've been discontent about what he's given us. 
We can think of all the times when we should have told the truth, but we were deceptive. And we think of all the times when we know we should have acted ethically, but shaved corners nonetheless. We think of all the times when we should have reached out and helped someone who needed help, but instead, like those on that road before the Good Samaritan, we turned our backs and walked by. We think of those times that litter our whole life, and then we think that maybe it's a good idea to keep a safe distance from Jesus. We want to stay out of range of that sword that he's swinging. It's a comforting discovery when we find out that Jesus didn't come to retaliate. He came to rescue. He came to restore us. It's almost too good to be true when we picture Jesus riding into our lives gently on a donkey, peacefully, humbly on a donkey, and and offering us forgiveness and guidance. So many of us make God something in our minds that he's not. Maybe we just need to take a breath today and let that mental picture of Jesus on a donkey kind of soak in for a moment. Instead of someone riding into your life while clutching a sword of anger and retribution in his hand, picture Jesus stretching out his open nail-pierced hand in a gesture of acceptance. As he comes humbly into our lives that way, Jesus tells us, tells all of us, that we need to model ourselves after him and to be humble as well. He said, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why is it that Jesus said that? Why did he ask us to be humble? It's because he knew that pride is the biggest roadblock between us and God. When we're proud, he knows that we say things like, look, I don't need anybody's help. I don't take anything from anybody. I'm a self-made man or woman. I don't apologize to anyone. The only time that you're going to see me on my knees is when I've accidentally dropped my gold-plated pen. The fastest way for us to get to the destination of humility is by contemplating what it is that the donkey teaches us today. He teaches us who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. When we think about the fact that he isn't a legend, he isn't some Marvel comic character, he's the actual son of God, and when we think about his choice to receive us rather than reject us, we begin to just catch a glimpse, a glimmer of the awesomeness of that. Humility, of course, is having a realistic view of who we are in relation to who Jesus is. When we do that and are humble, we begin to break down the barriers between us and God. We make it possible to begin a fulfilling relationship with him that will continue through all eternity. The donkey can help us understand who it is that Jesus is and what it is that Jesus is like. Finally, the third point is that the story of the donkey illustrates for us what Jesus deserves. When Jesus told a couple of his followers, go into that village ahead and bring me the donkey, you'll find there he added this. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. I can imagine the trepidation those disciples felt when they walked into the little village. That would be a little like one of us going out into a mall parking lot and trying to take somebody's car. Then while you're trying to start it, the owner comes along, a big guy named Guido, with tattoos on top of tattoos, and he says, What are you doing with my ride? You would say, the Lord needs it. That's going to really fly, right? You just picture that. Oh, well, then, of course. But the Bible records how the disciples went into that little village and found the donkey exactly where Jesus had foretold they would find it. And when they were untying it, sure enough, the owners come along and say, what are you doing? The disciples say, the Lord needs it. What would your response be if you were the owner right then? 
If we could put the response of the owners of that donkey into modern slang, do you know what it would be? No problem. No problem. The attitude of the owners of the donkey was that if the Lord wants it, he's got it. What better use could I make of this animal than to allow the animal to serve the servant king? Jesus really is humbly offering himself as a payment for our wrongdoing. And the point is that he just didn't say he was doing it. He allowed himself to be tortured to death on Good Friday to prove that's true. If Jesus really is the Messiah as he says he is, and he is, what the donkey taught us he was like and is like, a humble servant wanting to forgive us, then the question I want to ask you today is this. In light of that, what is the appropriate response that Jesus deserves from you? I'm going to say it again. What is the appropriate response that Jesus deserves from you? He comes to your life and he says, I love you. I want you to believe and live for me. What's your response? Is your response like the owners of the donkey? See, the logical response to me is, Lord, you want me? Then you can have me because of who you are and what you're like. You deserve all that I am and all that I have. Isn't that just really a logical response to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? To what better use could I put my life than to serve the God who has created me and served me so undeservedly? What better way is there to spend your life? Some people think we're insane for putting our trust in the Bible and depending on the Lord Jesus the way we do. They say we're weak. They say we're emotional cripples for having to lean on something outside of ourselves. In fact, these were the very words that my own father told me when I told him of my decision to follow Christ. And to those comments, I now reply, Amen. Absolutely. You want me to wear those labels? Hand them over and I'll put them on. I'm not ashamed to say there are days when I have no idea how I'm going to make it through. I am sustained and helped when I lean on the cross, when I lean on his word. If leaning hard on God makes me handicapped in the eyes of the world, then bring on the crutches. I'm not ashamed to admit my total dependence on him. I face it every time I walk up on the stage. Maybe the donkey has helped clear up some misconceptions that you've had about who Jesus really is. Maybe you always had a picture of Jesus as being that angry swordsman on top of a stallion and someone to avoid and stay clear of at all costs because you're afraid he's going to do something bad to you. Maybe now your perception has changed. Maybe you can begin to see him as someone who's gently riding into your life. Someone who to embrace rather than to escape from. Maybe others of you are feeling my faith has never really been my own. It's true that I have some faith, but it's so intertwined with family tradition. I, it's all kind of muddled up in there now. A bunch of religious rituals. I just don't understand. When I think about it, you might say, I've never actually personally given to Christ what he deserves. I never have personalized my faith, responding individually to him, and given him what he's deserved all along. You say, perhaps today I want to do that. You feel as if you want to come to God in humility and say, you want me? If you want me, you got me. Even in spite of disappointment with the donkey, where are the people at on Palm Sunday? The praise, nonetheless, is breaking out. He's on a donkey. Oh, well, let's praise him. 
It is not the king they quite expected, but they're going to worship him nonetheless. It's all we've got, and maybe this is some kind of, you know, trick. They begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, of course, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This is taken from an ancient psalm, Psalm 118. And it's a chant or a cry that had been cried out for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. Please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go back to the first verse and see what they came with, up with as a little remix when they're shouting it out to Jesus. Bless the what? Bless the king. That's not how it was written originally. Originally it was, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. They have something else in their mind now, don't they? Blessed is the king of Israel. Now they're declaring that this is our king, not Rome, not Caesar. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Not blessed is the one, not blessed is the lamb. Blessed is the king. Do you see how they just twisted scripture to make it work for them? We don't do that, do we? We see them taking palm branches and waving them around. This is something we don't see here. We don't see anything even green yet. We don't even want to go outside because it's supposed to snow this afternoon. They took palm branches and began to wave them at Jesus. Was that because they couldn't find anything else around at the time? No, this is a very specific and deliberate statement that they're making. I wonder if you know this. Palm branches were a symbol for the nation of Israel, of their freedom, of their independence. This is where the freedom is coming in. They're waving palm branches. This is a symbol of the nation of Israel, of our freedom, of our independence. A few hundred years earlier, when they were a free nation, archaeologists have found coins, and the image stamped on the coin is what? A palm branch. It represented to them a sense of national pride, of freedom and independence, like we might view our flag. In this case, it was a symbol of rebellion in this moment. Our king will bring our freedom, will bring our independence again. It would be like the Ukrainians in a city right now that the Russians have occupied, marching through the streets, waving the Ukrainian flag at all the troops. That's what's going on here. That's what waving palm branches meant. Even the Romans and certainly the Pharisees knew what palm branches meant and exactly what was going on here. The people were recognizing a new authority and it wasn't them. So here are all the people praising and worshiping this king, their savior, but not specifically the kind of savior that Jesus came to be. Thousands of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us, save us now, deliver us. Our king, the king of Israel has come. The Pharisees are freaking out. They recognize they're losing their power base. They run to Jesus and they tell him to shut his disciples up. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers. Strong word. Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. They say to themselves, and we get an insight into their psyche here, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world is going after him. Everyone is caught up in praising Jesus. Jesus, can't you just shut them up? 
And Jesus responds to their request, and it is one of the most powerful and most poetic statements about who you and I were created to be and what our lives were meant to be about in all the Bible. Look at this and maybe underline this in your Bible. Luke 19.40, listen to how Jesus responded. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into chairs. You want me to shut them up? Fine. But get ready for all of creation to burst into tears and worship over the true king. Jesus is saying something very specific about all of creation, including every one of us. We are created to recognize and worship Jesus as the king he is. Scripture speaks all throughout the Bible of how creation, wind, waves, water, grass, stones, recognize its creator. It says in essence, if our lives be, don't become acts of worship to Jesus, then we will be shown up. We will be outdone by the wind and the waves and the flowers and even rocks. Jesus is saying, you don't get it. The true king is revealing himself right before your eyes on this donkey and you can't even see it. You're missing it. This revolutionary parade now making its way down in Jerusalem, fueled by the stories of people who have heard, fueled by the miracles that they have seen, and fueled by a desire for a Messiah that they had waited for, but they didn't want the Lamb of God. They wanted a lion of war. A lion to force and enforce their freedom from the hand of their impressors. In the middle of this misguided moment, in the middle of this incredible adoration and worship and Hosanna and palm branches waving, you get a glimpse into the real truth about this king, this humble king. Because where do we see Jesus in this triumphant, and everybody calls it, the triumphant entry? Where do we see Jesus in the middle of this triumphant entry? But as they came closer to Jerusalem and Jesus saw the city ahead, he began to weep. In the midst of all this celebration, Jesus is crying. As they came closer to Jerusalem, this is the moment. This is the moment everybody has been waiting for, for worship, praise, singing, dancing, thousands of people. And in the middle of it, Jesus is crying. Behold your weeping king, people unlike anything you would expect. The words that John uses here imply it wasn't just a little tear. It was a blubbering sob. That Jesus was incredibly choked up and could not get over what was happening in that moment. Does anyone even notice? Does anyone even notice that the heart of God is being broken right now in front of them? Are people so caught up in their so-called worship of Jesus that they don't even see that they're breaking his heart? Don't they see the puddle of tears making its way down to the hot desert floor as Jesus weeps for a people, weeps for his people, who don't even recognize who he is? He says, how I wish that today you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against you and walls and walls and encircle you and, and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. In the middle of all this worship, they rejected the true king. 
Jesus was seeing into the future about 40 years from then when Rome would actually, truthfully and historically, it's been proven, would come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Literally, if you go to the holy city today, there are stones piled up on top of each other where every one of them was pulled down. Almost everyone in the city was either killed or taken into captivity. We see this king weeping for a people who even in their worship still miss it. He wasn't coming to them as the king of might and power, although he is that, but as the one who brings peace and love, not a battle cry, but a heart's cry for people who still missed the point. So that begs the question now of you and I. What do our lives say about the real Jesus? 2,000 years later, do we, do we recognize him? I want us to take a moment and think about this. If Jesus were to make an entry into this room today, right now, where we are, wherever you are watching, would we even recognize him? If he were sitting right next to you, would you know? How would you know? Would you recognize the real Jesus? Would I? I think we like the Jesus who forgives, I think we like the Jesus who forgives us our sins. That's a really good thing. That is a great thing. And it is easy to follow and recognize that Jesus, especially after a Friday or a Saturday night when things got a little out of hand. You know what I'm talking about? And we like that Jesus on Sunday morning. But what about the Jesus that says, take up your cross and follow me? What about the Jesus that said, abandon everything for the sake of the cause? The last will actually be first. What about that Jesus? Do you recognize that Jesus? Do we recognize the Jesus who comes to us, as Mother Teresa says, in the distressing disguise of the poor, the sick and the overlooked? Do we recognize that Jesus? Do you recognize the Jesus who doesn't work like a genie in a bottle and just give you all the wishes you want and whatever you want, but maybe who is moving in a different way in your life? It's easy to recognize Jesus when things are going well, when everything's working out, everything is just kind of good. But do you recognize Jesus when you're at the bottom or when it's tough or when it seems like there isn't any other answer? When all your circumstances and your surroundings point you in every other direction, would you recognize, would you follow Jesus? You think about this image of Jesus weeping. It broke my heart this week. It broke my heart to think about this. A few weeks earlier, he wept over his friend Lazarus and the loss and pain in his life. But we also see Jesus now weeping over an entire city, over all his people who don't recognize him, a people who don't even come close to recognizing him. What do you think Jesus is weeping over in your life right now? Is he joining with you in some pain, disappointment, or just a tough reality in your life? Would you let him in? We see the image so clearly from the scriptures. Could it be that Jesus is weeping over your hard heart? Is he weeping over the parts of your life and my life where we have refused to let him gently enter in? Is he weeping over a relationship or a pattern in our lives where we refuse to let him be king because we're still on the throne? He weeps. He weeps over that and wants nothing more than for you and I to open the gates and let him gently ride in. I want you to close your eyes right now. 
Just so you can think, just so you can picture this in your head. Jesus told the Pharisees, the ones who he wept over, us, he told us, that if you and I don't live our lives as an act of worship to God in our choices, in our relationships, in the times when people see us and the times when they don't, when we're at church and when we're not, that if we don't live every single bit of our lives before him, we will be outdone by rocks. Jesus is saying that in a rock, there is more life than you could possibly imagine because it recognizes its creator and the king. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be outdone by a rock. I don't want to be outdone by a sunset. I want people to recognize the king who I worship and who I live for. I want it to be loud. I want it to be real. And I want it to be outside of these walls. So you see, you and I have a choice. I'm going to ask you to take it to heart right now and really choose if you're willing to let your life be louder than a rock for Jesus. To let your life be what it was created to be, an act of worship to God, moment by moment, an everyday act of worship to God. I want you now to stand and let's sing an affirmation to that. <laughs>